You are listening to Vida Abundante. We have started a verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to John. Here's Pastor Jonathan Gallardo. So I'm going to read them. Verses 14 and on says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So friends, this morning, we're going to return to one of the most central, most profound elements of the Word of God, which is in the phrase, the Word became flesh. We're going to park there for a couple of Sundays. I want to take up more time, but because I think this central truth of the incarnation has been kind of overlooked in many occasions. Many of us have come to the consideration that we understood that God is man somehow and that Jesus Christ is God. But other than that, we have no firm grasp or there isn't deeper roots at the core of this. What does it mean for Jesus to be fully God and fully man? What does it mean for Jesus to be complete God and complete man. What does it mean for Jesus to be perfectly God and perfectly man? See, though this is a central truth in the Christian tradition, in, in the Christian faith, many of us would have difficulty explaining it. And so because this is our first time uh, going into this uh, theology, into this Christology, I want to spend some t- time on it so that you could, if you ever leave this place, at least you'll know that Here, the moment that you were here or the times that you were here, you learned a strong Christological truth about who the person Jesus Christ was. That way you could never say of at least my person that, well, Jonathan never taught us anything about Christology, so I had to learn it on my own or I had to look it up on YouTube. This, for me, is one of the most central truths. One of our professors in seminary who is a late professor in our seminary, Grant Osborne, said this about this phrase. This is the single greatest sentence ever written in the history of human language. The deepest theological statement that has ever been written. This demands our attention because it is a central truth. And what that truth does to us and how it impacts our life is what the Christian needs to really get to. That's why I read Second John, the epistle, because it starts talking about the commandments which they have received, which is to love God and love others. So in our prayer as a congregation, it was that. I don't want to just teach you stuff so that you can know. I want this truth of God to affect your inner person because that's what the truth does. It changes your nature, changes who you really are. So that you can leave this place not just knowing more about God, but doing as God wants you to do. 
have you loved your brother and sister lately? Not literally. It could be literal too. But your brother and sister in Christ. How are you in that, in that path? Do you love the people that you go to church with? Are they part of your service? Who have you served lately? Who have you humbled yourself down towards to help, to serve? This is what the central truth does. So the more we know about the incarnation, doesn't make us better people. There's a lot of doctors in theology out there that know the incarnation better than I do, and they don't have faith, and they don't love God, and they don't love others. So this doesn't mean that we're going to know and be better people just because we know. It has to do something to our heart. And that's why the epistle of John is very important. He's calling this lady to commit herself to the work of Christ by the knowledge of Christ that she already has. So my objective here is not just to puff you up with knowledge. It is to get you to understand what this truth does to your soul and to your heart as you walk out these doors. But I want to bring the gravity in, into perspective as, as the theologian Grant Osborne claimed that this is the greatest sentence. I want to read to you some historical theologians so that you can get a little bit more of the depth in this. One of the, the fourth century theologians, John Chrysostom, writes this about this very verse. For he became son of man, who was God's own son, in order that he might make the sons of men to be children of God. For when the high associates with the low, it does not touch its own honor at all. Instead, it raises up others from the excessive lowness. So what God did for us was not necessarily our perspective to see him lower, but to raise us up. And it goes further. Fourth century theologian Athanasius says this, he takes to himself a body capable of death, so that such a body by partaking of the word who is above all might be worthy to die in the, in the stead of all and might, because of the word that had come to dwell in it, remain incorruptible. And thus he, the incorruptible son of God, joined with all by a similar nature, naturally clothed all with incorruption by the promise of the resurrection. For the actual corruption in death no longer has a hold on humanity because of the word which by his one body has come to dwell among them. Death has been swallowed up because this man has lived among us as God. The flesh, the word of God became flesh. The Apostle Paul says it like this. It is a great mystery. If you look at first, if you write it down, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it is a great mystery, these truths that we have about the incarnation, about God becoming man. And friends, this is what we're going to be talking about for the next couple of weeks, and so I am going to park on verse 14. I, 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 you may have thought we would have finished this passage uh, last week, but I'm going to park here because this is what we really want to make you understand. So you have a firm grasp of what this means. So if we go back to verse 14, we're going to zoom in on a particular word. If we read it, it says, and the word became flesh. So we'll stop there. That's where we're going to park for the next couple of weeks. The word became flesh. We're going to zoom in on this word flesh. 
The Greek for it is sarx. In this context, I want you to get why John uses this word. And this is the, the matter of why we study and how we study here. If, if I can teach you how to study the Bible, this, this will be for your benefit. Because when you see these words, you have to ask yourself why these words are here. Specifically, if you read the, 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 the books of Paul, like Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, you'll see that Paul uses this very same word, but he uses it in a very negative context. For Paul, this flesh, this word flesh, is a negative. It is part of sinful nature. Ephesians 2.3 says flesh is, is uh, run by sin. In Romans chapter 7, he says nothing good lives in the flesh. So for Paul, this aspect of flesh is part of our sinful carnal nature. We are run by a sinful nature. That's what Paul argues about in chapter 7 of Romans and in chapter 8 of Romans. That's why in chapter 8 he says, those who live by the Spirit do what? Those who are born by the Spirit live by the Spirit. Those who are born of the flesh live by the flesh. So it's a negative connotation when the Apostle Paul uses it. So why is John using this very word in verse 14? And how can we say this is the greatest statement that has ever been written? Did God take on a sinful nature? Well, that word needs to be enhanced a little bit. We need to zoom in on it. And for John, if we read the rest of the book of John, every time John uses the word flesh or sarks, it is describing the human nature. So here's where we have to come to a, a firm grasp. We've got to get this really good. Because this is first century writings. How this impacts us in our time, we'll get to that. But this is first century writing. There's a bunch of people out there in the first century that do not understand this Christ figure. He is daunting to them. He is claiming to be God. He is claiming to be a king. They don't know what to do with Jesus, and therefore they crucify him. It's a difficult understanding to see everything that he's doing. He's doing miracles. He's raising people from the dead. He's doing all of this, these things, miraculous things, and people just don't know what to do. They don't get it. And so John has to come in and describe in detail who this person is. And, and friends, we are Christians, or we come to a Christian church. Our faith is based on Christian doctrine. We need to know who Jesus Christ is. None of this superficial stuff should, should be enough for us. It isn't enough for us to say, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's, that's, not, that's not it. There's more. And so John presses this to show us that this is his human nature that he takes on. The God of eternity, eternity past. The God of, of John chapter 1, verse 1, 2, and 3. This Logos, who existed before everything and who created all things, and in who all things were created, has come down and has taken on flesh. So if you see it this way, he's taking upon, his, upon himself something that he was not. And people were confused in the first century because they thought that then at his conception, that's when the, the Son of God came into existence. But verse 1 and verse 2 and verse 3 are very clear about this. He existed before 
all time. He's taking on a human nature. He is clothed like you and me. Now, this, is, this means something, and we're going to get to that in a bit. But, but this is what John is kind of clearing up at the get-go. We're going to be talking and discussing this humanity or the human nature of the Logos. A couple of weeks ago or at the beginning of the month, uh, beginning of last month, we were talking about the divinity of Christ or the divinity of the Logos. Now we're going to discuss a little bit more on his human nature, this human frail nature. I love how Calvin sees it as part of uh, the frailty of humanity. He became weak for our sake, but he never took on our corrupt nature. This is important. Christ, in his human nature, never sinned. So, why does John use this word? Why doesn't John use another word? For instance, in the Greek, there's two other words that he could have used. The word soma is body. Why didn't, why didn't John say uh, the word became a body? There's another word that's it's a little bit more clear, which is anthropos. The word became a man. That's the word for humanity or the Greek word for man. Why is John using flesh? Well, this is, again, a first century construction to go against every incorrect understanding of God or of this person in Jesus Christ. How does this play out? Well, in the first century, people were confused on his divine nature. They were definitely confused on his human nature. And one of the things that John does in clearing this up by saying sarx or flesh, it's clearing up the concept of docetism. Now, you'll, you'll ask yourself, what is, what is docetism? Well, in the first century, there were those docetic kinds that thought that the body of Jesus Christ was a phantom body. Can you imagine that? People in the first century said, well, the body of Christ isn't a real body. It's a spirit. Kind of fitting for this Halloween spirit, right? It, it, it was floating around and it pretended or it tricked everyone in believing that it was a human body, but in all reality, it was a phantom spirit that was hovering around doing all these miracles. Now, you have to ask yourself, why would people think that? Well, remember, Jesus is raising people from the dead. Jesus Christ is doing things that no human can do. People have to come to their own conclusions about this. And John says, no, he, he does not have a phantom spirit. That's why John goes to the literal and says, he took on flesh. He clothed himself in flesh. So to the docetics, he, he is proving that this body isn't a phantom spirit. There's this group of Gnostics that are coming in that are called the Ebionites, and the Ebionites would say that this man, per se, is only inhibited or inhabited by God. The presence of God has taken over him, and he is doing great things through this presence, but then this presence eventually leaves before he is crucified. So here, to, to, get, it, to get a better understanding on this, there's this group of Ebionites who are like the Valentinian Gnostics at the time. They think that only the Logos comes into a man 
or has inhabited a baby. In, in, in an example, Mary, while she was pregnant, it wasn't because it was prophesied. It was just because she was pregnant. And in pregnancy, maybe the Logos comes into that baby, and then the rest is history. So John is really saying, no, 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 this isn't the, a soma, this isn't a body. He is not just another man in which the, 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 the presence of God does mighty things, because the presence of God was doing mighty things through John the Baptist. The presence of God did mighty things through Old Testament saints. Abraham, Isaac, uh, uh, Moses, Noah, David. The presence of God did mighty things through them. This isn't just another man that the Spirit takes over or, or gets in the, in the driver's seat of. This is a person who has taken on himself flesh. That's why this is a bomb. That's why this is like a huge, a huge cry out to everyone and a huge clearing point, especially in John's context, to say, no, you guys are all wrong. You have it wrong. In order for us to follow Christ, we must know who he really is. And the first thing John says is that God has taken up flesh. Now, to the Gnostics and to the Ebionites and to the, and to the Docetists, all of this was just like, no, this is just too much. And in the life of Jesus, they leave. They leave him because... Remember when Christ says, we're going to get to it in John chapter 6, but remember when Jesus says, eat of my flesh and, and take of my blood? People are like, this is weird, man. We, we can't do this anymore. And, and so they leave, and Jesus says, that's okay. Anybody else want to go? Because in reality, it's God in the flesh who becomes active in our generations. Now, again, this isn't just to inform you. And this isn't just a class on Christology. This has big implications for us today. And so that's why I'm taking this painstakingly approach to develop this thought in you so that you know that the one that you worship was completely God and was completely man. And we're going to get to his work in the next couple of weeks, but this is important for you to build your framework for the rest of your understanding on Christ. So John is careful not to allow this error to continue. And, and friends, you know, in the first century, this is life and death. This is, this is like, you got to make sure you have this clear because your life depends on it. John was ex excommunicated from his native land into a, 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 an island where he was almost boiled to death because of this. This is real stuff in the first century church. And even though it's real and their lives depended on it, the truth had to come out. And you saw this in all chapter 1, the truth and believing and having faith. There, there is this need for people in the first century to believe in truth no matter what the cost. So friends, we can't come up here. We can't have church and teach some phony doctrines to you guys. We can't come up here and just make you feel good and have a blessed Sunday and everyone smiles and laughs and goes home because the pastor was funny and amusing. That's not the point of this. The point is for you to understand truth and what the Bible teaches you is truth. And the Bible says the word became flesh. Now, now what are you going to do after that? 
Now, what does that mean to you? How are you going to live according to that truth? John is clearing this up so that error doesn't continue. And friends, you talk to anybody out there, any of your friends and more educated friends, people that have gone to Harvard maybe, MIT, maybe they've gone to Berkeley in California, maybe they've, they've gone to these big Ivy League schools, and, and you talk to them about this, and they're just going to be like, really, 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 bro? You really believe that stuff? This is where reality, this is where our faith meets our reality and what we're going to do afterwards. So this is important. The Logos didn't come to enter into a body. He did not seem human, and he wasn't just adopted at baptism. There's another group that I, haven't, I didn't go too deeply in, but this adoptionist group believed that at Jesus' baptism, that's when God adopted him as his son. Now that's just nonsense because the prophets proclaimed his coming and in the baby form. So this, this is to clear up all these, these incorrect thoughts about Christ to prove that his body was flesh and that it was real. It's not enough, my friends, to believe in Jesus, but we need to know what kind of Jesus we believe in. Everyone, you, I remember maybe three, four years ago, I was, or five years ago, I think, we did a video. It was an interesting video. I, I went out on the street here on 54th Avenue after, after the, the school, the, the eighth grade. This is an eighth grade junior high. They all came out, and I interviewed a bunch of junior hires, and I asked them, hey, do you believe in Jesus? And everybody was like, yeah, yeah, I believe in Jesus. And, and it was just, I, I forgot what we were doing, but we did a video on it. I mean, it might be on the internet somewhere, but we did a video on it. There was like one person that said, I believe in science. I think he watched Nacho Libre or something, and, and he got like influenced by that. But, but, but other than that, the majority of the kids were like, yeah, I believe in Jesus. And then I asked them, what do you believe about him? There wasn't too much afterwards. But this world in general believes about Jesus. There's this... Even, even if, like, around this time, wait till December and, and look out for Time Magazine. Because Time Magazine always does this spiel on the historical Jesus. And, and you'll see it at Jewel. If you go shopping, grocery shopping at Jewel or Costco, wherever you see Time Magazine, they'll, they'll put up this huge picture of the historical Jesus. And you're like, wow, Time Magazine is talking about Jesus. That's good, right? Well, there's this movement that started in the 18th, 19th century with German higher critics on the Bible that wanted to separate the historical Jesus from the Christian Jesus. So there's this movement in our times, and this is what Time Magazine does, and this is what the History Channel does. So if you're ever watching the History Channel and you see like things about Jesus' life and you're like, oh, this is so cool because the History Channel is showing us stuff about Jesus. Well, just be very careful. They, they have a twist. So they're proving to us, or Time Magazine would prove it, uh, that, that Jesus was a man, was a good person in the first century Jewish community, but they go to trace his historical roots, and that's it. All his miracles, this concept of him being God, this concept of him raising from the dead, that's a little bit out of the question in the pursuit for the historical Jesus. So this comes up. 
This is real, my friends. And, and so I don't want you picking up Time Magazine the next time you're in Jewel uh, uh, around Christmas and being like, wow, oh, oh, wait, wait, we didn't learn about this in, in, in church. They're saying that Jesus didn't do this. Like, what does this mean? So I don't want you guys to be confused on it. Now I know the majority of you are probably going to go buy Time Magazine at the, in Christmas time. And it, well, you know, look it up. It's good. It's good for you to know. But you know that it's a historical Jesus approach. We don't have time to get into that, but that was 18th, 19th century German higher criticism on the Bible. Critics about the Bible. Their whole job is to criticize every aspect of the Bible. Anyway, this is the world that we live in, and that's why John in the first century describes this to us so that his followers know, and for us in our day, so that we can live on this faith. So John presents this flesh to be the human nature of Jesus as the body. So we got to get into this body concept and everything that entails. And it's pretty clear that scripture teaches this to us in great detail. I'm not going to mention all the passages, but some of the passages that are most famous for this are found in Colossians, especially Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, that it says, For in him the fullness of the deity dwells bodily. The deity has inhabited and has clothed itself in a body, has taken on flesh. The epistle, 1 John Chapter 4, verse 2 says, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And then the following verse says, Whoever doesn't confess that he has come in the flesh is of the devil. This is the central Christian truth that God has taken on flesh. Luke chapter 2, verse 2 describes the concept of Jesus Christ growing up. He grew in stature and knowledge. He was learning. He hungered. He thirsted. He slept. He wept. He sweated blood. He felt exhausted. He ate. He had relationships. Can you think about the relationships the human body, the human person of Jesus had? He grew up in a place where he wasn't wanted. In poverty and under a, a, an empire that was governing with an iron fist? The relationships that he had with the Jewish people that didn't like him, that wanted to stone him every time they saw him, that wanted to kill him? The relationships he had with his physical brothers? The relationship he had with his mother? The relationship that he had with his disciples? All of this is Jesus in his human nature. That's why he was sleepy. That's why he was asleep in the boat. Now, in, 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 uh, par pardon me for going off tangents a bit, but this is, it, it just, it bugs me because I see this in the prosperity gospel come up time and time again. And, and the famous names like Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagen, all these names who have presented this gospel of prosperity on television. If you look at Daystar or, or I forgot what other television networks are out there, but they're a little bit weird. And, and they present these guys and, and they have this fundamental teaching that Jesus was separate from God, was a modal aspect of the Father. 
So that's why they say Jesus slept, Jesus wept. There they say, well, that can't be God because God doesn't sleep. God can't eat. God doesn't go hungry. God isn't exhausted. And, and what's incredible about this is that they have thousands upon hundreds of thousands of followers. And what's even more, what gets me more angry is that these hundreds of thousands of followers give them money to buy planes and jets to go cruising to Hawaii and to have all these nice vacation spots. It's incredible to see that the lack of understanding in the Christian world on the Christian person or, or the, the physical person of Jesus Christ is ridiculous. It's sometimes non-existent. And so people believe whatever they want to believe. Friends, I'm only teaching you what the Word of God says, and if you don't believe it, we can talk about this after, after the service. I mean, I'm here for this. I love this. I would love to talk to you Christology. I mean, I have more historical data to talk to you about. But what we need to clear up. This is in the television, in Christian television. And if you go to Christian bookstores, these false realities of Christ are bestsellers. So friends, we got to know who this Christian is. Christ is, who this God incarnate is so that we can grow up and know him and let this truth affect us. I love how Luther said this, the 16th century reformer, he did not flutter about like a spirit. Luther's commentary, co commentating on John chapter 1, he wasn't floating around, flying around like a spirit. His body felt what we felt. So in other words, to get a little bit scientific, and I'm not a science major at all, but to get a little bit more scientific, his body was exactly like ours. Now I want you to kind of swallow that a little bit. Jesus was like me? In his physical body, his human nature was exactly like ours. His anatomy, his physiology, his biochemistry, every part of his body, human nature was exactly like ours. His mother, Mary, provided him the chromosomes, making him this a unique, making Jesus Christ a unique person. And we're going to get to that uniqueness in, in the rest of this passage uh, later on. But this uniqueness, his mother giving him the chromosomes and the genealogy of this Jewish nation. But then we are left with who provided the Y chromosome? The mother provided mother's chromosomes and all that science behind that. But who provided the Y chromosome? Well, that's easy for us who believe in the word of God because we just go to Matthew, we just go to Luke, and it says the spirit through miraculous virgin conception. God the Father, through the Spirit, provided this Y chromosome that determines the sex of the baby, and it came to be in a miraculous way. You, you see the difficulty with, with modern scholars and modern historians to say, well, that just, you know, that just doesn't fly. Like, who, she, was she really, did she re, was she still a virgin when this happened? I mean, come on. Like, it puts this reality on the Christian. It throws the ball to the Christian and says, all right, come on. Okay, you can say it, but do you really believe that? Do you really believe that a miraculous conception happened? 
in a Virgin Mary. And though some of us can be like, yeah, man, yeah, I think so. Some of us are more like, of course, this is the word of God. We don't shy away from it. Others would probably be like, well, when you put it that way, that is a little weird. Friends, this happened through the spirit of God, a miraculous conception as it was prophesied in the, in the prophets of the Old Testament to happen. And this happened because God inhabited this woman through the spirit and it brought about this baby in human form that carried the gene of his Jewish nation up in a humble poverty level in, in Jewish society, rejected by many, grew up and felt the pains of what it is to grow up in poverty, grew up knowing from his birth that life, people wanted to take his life away from the very start, grew up knowing that his mission on earth was to accomplish his father's will that would lead him to death. Can you imagine living with that your entire 33 years of existence? He knew this in a physical body because that's the way God had planned it. And the, he, and Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says something very uh, much important here. He was tempted in every way we were tempted. We are tempted. However, he never sinned. Human nature of Christ never sinned. And that's daunting to us. And that, that's going to take play in what we're going to be talking about in the next couple of weeks when we get to his work. But that's, in, that's, that's something that we need to really get here. He grew up in this body was tempted in every way, and still had no sin. He served, his body serves the link between him and physical creation, a suffering humanity. This body of Christ is now what Paul describes as a glorified body in Philippians chapter 3 verse 21. Paul sees the, the glorified body that is in heaven that is at the right hand of God as a body that is glorified, as a body that will not be subject to illness, as a body that we may not understand here on earth at this very moment. And yet this body, as Revelation chapter 5 verse 6 says, still bears the marks of his suffering. Look at my hands. This body that is not subject to decay, Subject to sin, Paul says, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 44, and it is what we are promised one day. So friends, Christ, the fact that the Son of God, the Logos, took on flesh, suffered everything that we suffered, remains in his body at this very moment in a glorified state. That same Christ that lived the life that we lived, that suffered everything that we suffered, that is now at the right hand of God, that same body is the same body we are promised to have in Scripture. A body that will no longer feel pain. 
a body that will not be under the influence of any obstacle in this life. A body that will never experience cancer. A body that will never experience diabetes. A body that will never suffer. This is what we are promised of those who believe that this Christ came down in human flesh. This is the body that Christ has and has promised to us. This body also entails, and I'm going to just fly over this a bit because of the time, and we're going to get back to it in a couple of weeks uh, as we dig into the, God, the human will, but this human body has within itself a human will, and we're going to start discussing some areas of conflict in the early church about this. A human will, a human soul, this means a human psychology. As we mentioned, Luke chapter Verse 52 states that he grew not only physically, but he grew in knowledge. As a child grows in understanding, he learned. This is the Son of God. This is God learning in his human nature. He learned, which means he didn't know things. And then you come to that wonderful question that everyone asks, well, isn't he God? Doesn't God know everything? Well, friends, this is why we're talking about this. Because there is a divine nature and there is a human nature in one person. That's why Paul says this is a mystery. So we're never really going to fully understand it. But I want you to know what not to get. And I want you to see the errors that the early church came to a conclusion about because they couldn't understand this. And that's why John has to say, Halagas sarx egeneto. The word became flesh. That's why John had to say it the way he said it. So he had this human psychology, in, in 13, which is the argument that many people use. Matthew chapter 13, verse 32, is the parousia, or the, 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 the coming of the Lord. And Jesus says to his disciples, no one knows when the coming of the Lord is. Not even his angels, not even the Son of God knows. Like the, the, the close, the closing of the, of the one who's arguing. A Jesus that is not God. You see, Jesus himself doesn't even know when this coming will take place. Did Jesus know? That'd be a good home group question. Did Jesus know? Well, are we talking about his human nature? Or are we talking about his divine nature? And how did those two interact with each other? And that's why, friends, we're also going to talk about Philippians and the kenosis passage of him humbling himself and emptying himself of, 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 of those things that made him God here on earth. We're going to discuss that. But this is a real question. Did he know? And if he didn't know, then is he God? Well, we know he is God because John says it. But we have to understand this communication between the human nature and the divine nature, and how Jesus himself humbles himself to limit himself in his human nature. If Luke chapter 2, verse 52 says he learns, Jesus in his human nature learns, and he grows in this knowledge that the Father has. Obviously, the divine nature knows all things. 
So this is part of his soul and his psychology. Jesus has human emotions. Human, Jesus feels joy. We often see Jesus just crying and feeling anger. But Luke chapter 15 and John chapter 15 speaks on the joy of Jesus that he experienced. Jesus felt joy because he was full of the Spirit because he is God. Also felt anger, and we see that a lot in the gospel. The three felt grief, very hard grief, especially in Mark chapter 14, verse 33, when he is faced with the agony of Gethsemane. This is pain. This is utter pain. A lot of scholars come to this and say Jesus was trembling at Gethsemane. It was the worst type of pain human could have had experienced. He suffered and he had grief and he did this so that you and I would not have to face Gethsemane ourselves. Jesus took on the worst type of human pain upon himself so that you and I wouldn't have to do it. And he took it on being God and being completely human. Why is this important, my friends? This is important because it fits the storyline of the whole divine narrative. God created man in his own image. If we look at Genesis chapter 1, and in this image he gave him the opportunity to rule the world and to bring glory to all parts of the creation. However, this man failed against God, and now all of humanity has assumed a divine curse. We are all under this curse apart from Christ. This divine plan developed through covenants, through promises in the Old Testament. Each covenant mediator failed time and time again to bring this promise of the truth image of God to the world and to restore it. These mediators never restored God's rule over creation. They in covenant to, to, to establish the covenant promise with God, they failed to represent humanity at its fullest to God. Adam failed. Noah Abraham failed. Israel failed. David failed. All of these men were designed to bring in this covenant reality of glory. All failures. What's the solution then? The solution, my friends, exists in one man who can represent God on earth. One man who can live in covenant obedience to God. One man who can bear the covenant on behalf of a disobedient humanity. One man must rule with the character of God over the entire earth. And who is this man? It's not a rhetorical question, friends. It's the same Sunday school answer that you should always give. Who is this man? Who is this man? Jesus! 
Say with some conviction, who is this man? Jesus, there you go. You should be able to scream the name of Jesus in church and feel the power of that. It is Jesus Christ, the solution to this problem that led to the storyline of the word becoming flesh. Jesus is the true image of God. Jesus is the one, is a complete offspring from Abraham as we studied. Jesus is the one who is obedient in his humanity because even when he was tempted, he did not sin. Jesus is the great high priest, the work that he will do for us. Jesus is the Davidic king that was promised to us. And Jesus is the last Adam. All sin, as Paul says, came in through one man, Adam. But we are made new with a new Adam, the last Adam, which is in Christ. He saved us, my friends, by being one of us, by living amongst us. He saved us. So this isn't a phantom spirit that was floating around. Judea, this isn't just some ghost, some really good person that did it. This is God in the flesh that brought us to salvation. So next week, we're going to get technical on this because we're going to go through the Council of Chalcedon of the third of the fourth century, fifth century, sorry, and we're going to discuss the erring views between these 400 years after Christ and the views that we have to watch out for as a church. But we believe in the name above all names that is Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand up. Shake the person's hand next to you. Say, hey, good to sit next to you today, my friend. Good sitting next to you. And I want to pray for you today as we walk out. I, I hope that you guys can hang out with us in, the, in our lounge and check out some of the books that we have. Uh, but let me pray for you guys as we leave. Father, every other representative and mediator failed. Even though Moses was great, even though Abraham was great, even though David was the greatest king Israel had ever seen, even though the prophets were great instruments to bring your word, even though John the Baptist in the New Testament was the greatest prophet who ever existed, all of these men failed. Until the God-man, until Jesus Christ came into this world to accomplish the divine plan that his Father sent him to do. Father, we are gathered here under the flag of Jesus Christ. There is no other name whom we gather under there is no other person who we worship. There is no other mediator. There is no other God. 
It is Jesus Christ who we proclaim. It is Jesus Christ crucified. It is Jesus Christ resurrected that we proclaim. And it is Jesus Christ who will return. Father, we humbly accept your word and live based on this great truth. That Jesus, being man, lived exactly like us. And one day, we will be like him. In sitting in heavenly places. Father, I pray for any pain, any hurt, any, any just thoughts of heaviness that are in this congregation today. Lord, that we can rest assured that this isn't the end for your people. There's hope that there is a light because you are the light. But Father, I keep praying with strong conviction that because we know this truth, we can act accordingly. So I pray, Lord, that you give us arms to hug, to embrace those that are in pain. I pray that you give us resources to help those who are under-resourced. I pray that you give us the heart to serve one another so that we can live out your church here on earth. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.